1: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host Lisa Abramowitz.
3: Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
2: Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com.
3: Paul, this week starts the marking period of are we seeing a hopium trade or is there something <laughs> real underpinning this? We're seeing a real beginning of a, of a reopening and a lot of people gaining optimism that perhaps we will get a sharper yep. rebound than some people had expected. It's sort of a V-shaped recovery and in, in V-shaped recovery expectations. Um, joining us now to discuss Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research, uh, based in Chicago, also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. I love speaking with Jim. You always have a great contrarian but apt view of the multi-asset class perspective, but with a focus on the bond market. Right now, what you're seeing, is it more hope than reality?
4: I'm afraid that there's a little bit more hope in here than the reality, and here's why. If you go back to 2008, at the worst point of that uh, recession, you had output at 96% of what it was in 2007. You only had a 4% contraction in output. Um, In the Great Depression, you actually had a 75% of the output that you had at the 1929 high. If you go with the consensus figures, we should have about an 11 or 12 percent contraction at the end of the second quarter. Then comes the rebound. Okay, we got to get back to 96 percent of where we were. We got to get back to 98, and that would just put us at a 2008 type recession. We got to get back to 98 percent of where we were to have a garden variety recession. So when I look at things like the mobility numbers, the open table numbers, the consumption of gasoline numbers, these numbers are nowhere near getting back to just 2% of where they were in January. They're still 20 or 30% below. And I'm worried that we're not going to get all the way back. And I'll give you one more um, uh, statistic. Yesterday, we had 2.1 million people file for initial unemployment claims. If you add in the pandemic insurance for the gig workers, it's more like 3 million. And I got this from Mike McKee. He tweeted this out yesterday. Look, we're 10 weeks into the pandemic. And last week, Connecticut became the 50th state to be in some stage of restarting their economy if we still had 2 million people file for claims last week when everybody restarted, those are probably permanently lost jobs. Those are probably not temporarily furloughed jobs because of the pandemic. That happened earlier in the pandemic. That really leads up me to believe, yeah, we'll get back to 90% of where we were, but that's still a bad recession, and I think that's going to be a big disappointment for a lot of people.
2: So, Jim, I guess a new term for me and for many Uh, investors this week was uh, yield curve control. What does yield curve control mean to you and do you think it's a good idea slash strategy?
4: Yield curve control, it goes by another phrase called price fixing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I I know where we're going. That's
4: the price. They set the price. They've already done it on the front end of the yield curve. They set it at zero. And now we're talking about them setting the price further out the yield curve. And then they would say with their balance sheet, they would use it in an unlimited way hopefully wouldn't be unlimited, that they would uh, ensure that that price would be set. Price fixing has never worked. Now to be charitable about it, the day you set the price is probably close to the proper value, um, just like Japan did in 2016 when they set the price of their 10-year yield at zero. But then over time, the economy will you know, expand, contract, investor preferences will change, things will be different. But what won't change is the interest rate. That will be the same every single day. And eventually, over time, it becomes the wrong interest rate, and it winds up causing more problems than it's worth. So I'm very worried. I think if the Fed was to study the Japanese example of yield curve control or the example that they did during World War II from 1942 to 1947, they did yield curve control, it largely didn't work. But yet I think the reason they're doing it is because they don't want to go to negative interest rates, another scheme that doesn't work. And this one is kind of like negative interest rates light, you know, and it just gets them to be able to say that they're doing something, but they're not doing the draconian thing of negative interest rates. But nevertheless, it's still not a good policy, and I hope that they don't follow through on it.
3: Well, it's showing the limits of monetary policy at a time when people are saying fiscal policy is necessary. And we've gotten that. And this was evident in the consumer uh, income numbers that we received today, where we actually saw incomes rise by 10.5% in April. People attributing this to the enhanced unemployment benefits. When will we start to see this in spending, which actually was worse than expectations? We're seeing people put this money in savings or buy basic necessities, but it really isn't bleeding into overall consumption yet.
4: Yeah, you know, what's consistent with that number, too, is the University of Chicago study that said 68% of the people that are now getting unemployment insurance, and remember there's an extra $600 a week from the federal government in there, are actually making more money off of unemployment insurance than they did in their job. And that's what you see in those personal consumption numbers. I think really the reason that you're seeing the spending is, or the spending not kick in is we know that that's going to end in a couple of months right. unless it's renewed. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I'm getting more money on unemployment than I didn't uh, than right. when I was working, but I know that that's not forever. And I think once there's a permanent resolution to that, either it gets extended for yep. a long period of time or doesn't is going to determine how people spend.
2: Hey, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective. Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. Jim is also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion, giving us uh, his thoughts on kind of the Fed, the economy, and what is to come for the U.S. economy.
5: This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Well, we are awaiting a press conference from President Trump sometime later today. One of the many topics likely to be addressed will be the rising tensions between the U.S. and China. Whenever we want to get smarter on China, we welcome our guest, Leland Miller. Leland is the CEO of China Basebook uh, International. So, Leland, I hate to put you on the spot. What do you think we could possibly hear from President Trump today as it relates to the current state of U.S.-Chinese relations? Well,
5: look. The, the issue of the day is Hong Kong, and I think it's important to understand the landscape has changed dramatically uh, over the past several weeks. So, first, Beijing pushed through Article 23 uh, sedition laws in Hong Kong. It's a process, but they've announced it's happening. It's coming out of the National People's Congress. The State Department, the U.S. State Department, has responded by decertifying Hong Kong as an autonomous entity. Uh, So saying there's no difference between Hong Kong and China based on its review. What this has essentially done is is set the two sides up to see uh, how much this is going to escalate. And President Trump has a presser today. He's going to uh, lay out the fact that that the situation has changed, that the United States is prepared to, to escalate in some dramatic ways if it sees Hong Kong change dramatically on the ground. Uh, but I think right now you're at a point in which each side is looking at each other and saying we're going to see how bad this gets and we're going to react based on some of the realities on the ground rather than rather than the initial step of, 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 the, of the laws going into effect.
3: What are some of the U.S.'s options in getting tough with China right now?
5: Well, look, you, can, you have nuclear options that the, that the White House is, is, is not ready to go to. But I think the more realistic ones are – Requirement visa requirement changes. Uh, there's a lot of worries about extradition um, and 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 ways that the Chinese will take advantage of the new laws to, to basically disappear people. There needs to extradition is a major topic. Uh, sanctions are going to be on the table, particularly financial sanctions, and then of course tariffs are looming in the background. We know the president loves tariffs. Uh, this doesn't mean they're ready to actually. Uh, commit to, to to hiking tariffs and to, and to revoking special status. Uh, they don't appear to be there yet, but it means that the president has to lay out the landscape. Here's what we've got on the table, and then sort of bait, dare Beijing to to behave within the con uh, the construct of, of of the new system.
2: Leland, any sense of why China is taking this harder, more uh, sterner stance towards Hong Kong right now? Is there anything unique in, in the in the timing here?
5: Yeah, you know, it's, there's a there's a tendency to look at everything through the U.S. China lens, and and it's not that there isn't uh, a U.S. China angle here, but this is basically uh, a reaction to Hong Kong's domestic political schedule. You have you have legislative council elections it's in September, and if those proceed, pro Beijing forces are going to get demolished. So. Beijing had an option of either postponing or suspending or getting rid of those elections or else moving in the summer window to push forward Article 23, which will essentially make it illegal to do anything promoting secession, sedition, treason, it gives them wide, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of options to be able to ensure that people they don't like don't rise to power in Hong Kong so this is their window they're moving on it it just happens to be a very critical time in the US China relationship as well so everything is a reaction to everything else
3: you said earlier, and you've said this a number of times, that you think that the phase one trade deal is going to get torpedoed later this year. Uh, we were speaking with a number of people from the Trump administration that doesn't seem to be on the table right now. There seems to be a cautiousness about going that route. What do you think would make that change? Well,
5: I think the reality on the ground is the Chinese can't live up to the terms of the deal. You could say that some of it's COVID or a lot of it's COVID. Uh, You could say part of it was an unrealistic deal. But going into the fall, we're entering the most toxic period in U.S.-China relations since the Tiananmen Square incident back in 1989. I think things are going to get really, really tough. And as a result, it's going to be very difficult for the president to stick by a deal – particularly with the Chinese, particularly when they're not adhering to most of it. They're hitting some targets. They may even exceed a few targets on the agricultural side. But in order to back the deal, the president's going to have a lot of pressure on him to, 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 to condemn the Chinese and to walk away from it. And I think that sooner rather than later, that actually gets to him.
2: It's interesting, Leland. I think real quickly, my question, I guess, is just one. It, it, is there really anything that we can do to prevent Hong Kong from really becoming a significantly a part of China and really lose its, its in- independence and internationalism?
5: Uh, no. We have no way of stopping what's happening, but we can affect how it looks. So one of the reasons why uh, I wouldn't expect to see the full range of options laid out today, or at least uh, uh, pushed out today, is that the United States has an ability to affect how aggressively the Chinese – act in Hong Kong, even if when Article 23 is a reality on the ground, if people are disappearing left and right, particularly, you know, next week is the Tiananmen uh, anniversary, uh, that will be extremely incendiary if this law applies retroactively. It would, be, it would encompass all the people who've, who've participated in democracy protests for the last couple of years. It would be extremely incendiary, really worry people on the ground in Hong Kong even more so than in than, than, than this case now. So the United States, by keeping active, by keeping aggressive, but keeping its options open, can affect the way this plays out on the ground. It can't reverse it, but it can affect how it looks you know, six months or a year from now.
3: Leland Miller, thank you so much for being with us. As always, your insights are incredibly valuable. Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International. You know success when you see it. Or you
1: think you do. The people in the spotlight athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common,
5: This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio
3: market has been buffeted recently by a series of economic data that show a brutal reality as well as the incredible policy response that has fueled optimism in markets and now increasingly a focus on growing tensions between the US and China there is no one better to speak about all of these things than in the intersection of them than Nathan sheets chief economist and head of macroeconomic research at PGM fixed income with more than 800 billion dollars under management who has worked at the Fed working on some of these emergency programs during the last financial crisis, as well as in the Treasury Department, working internationally with a front-eye view in the possible issues uh, that may arise there. Nathan, thank you so much for being with us. We have talked so much about the policy response. I want to shift gears in terms of the U.S.'s response to China and from a financial perspective, how worried market watchers should be about the escalating tensions right now between the U.S. and China?
6: The U.S.-China relationship is clearly a first-order risk uh, for the economy and for the markets. I think we saw it last year with the trade war, and I think that this escalation in the tensions between the United States and China uh, that we're seeing in recent weeks here, uh, also uh, holds some very significant risks that we need to worry about. Uh, now, my expectation is that President Trump is going to try to to keep this mainly in the field of rhetoric between now and the election. But uh, the possibility that he missteps, the possibility that Congress forces his hand or the possibility that the Chinese react more vigorously than what the administration is expecting. I think all of those possibilities um, uh, hold meaningful risks. And I think uh, are, are, are concrete uh, you know, risks that we need to be thinking hard about as we, as we consider the markets over the next six months.
2: All right. So we've got that to worry about. Uh, But we also have the reopening, if you will, Nathan, of America. It's kind of on a state by state basis, region by region basis. What is your expectation for how this reopening goes and and what it might mean for economic economic activity and and a potential rebound later in the year?
6: So I am persuaded that the uh, geographical diversity and heterogeneity that you described, that different regions are opening up at different paces, is likely to be a feature of the U.S. economy that is somewhat supportive of recovery. And uh, just to emphasize that, I think right now, much of the industrial northeast of the country is still pretty well locked down. But there are broad swaths of the south, uh, the Midwest, and uh, the western part of the country where uh, the economy is moving back toward normal at a pretty, pretty rapid rate. So when I put all of this together, it gives me maybe a little bit more confidence than I had a few weeks ago that the U.S. economy is going to be able to achieve a gradual uh, U-shaped uh, recovery. I don't expect the level of GDP to be back to where it was at the end of 2019 uh, until uh, well into 2021. But I think a gradual recovery growth in the second half of the year is, uh, is a pretty reasonable baseline, and I think it's the one that's being priced in uh, in, uh, in the markets at this stage.
3: The hallmark of this downturn is the unemployment rate which has been surging and may reach uh, what some expect to be 20% this month and figures that come out next Friday a week from today. I'm struggling to understand the skills gap that emerges and how we close that, the idea that a lot of these jobs will not come back in the same form and that people will have to get rehired in new roles that require new skills. How long do you think that takes and what could speed it up?
6: In, in my view, the three big questions that characterize this uh, this recovery, and I think frame the risks around them, are first, uh, what happens with the virus? Second, what happens uh, in terms of psychology of, of consumers? And the third one is, is exactly this issue that you're highlighting. Through this period, to what extent has the underlying structure of the economy been damaged? How many workers are there that are not going to be able to go back to their jobs and their skills are diminishing? How many firms that were previously productive uh, will now be bankrupt and as a result of that, unable to produce? I think it is very much, the answer is very much an open issue, but I think what we can say is the faster we're able to get back, uh, the better the virus proceeds that the less damage we'll see uh, over the medium to long run uh, in the economy. I think the other point that's important here is I think that the stimulus that the Fed and, and Congress have put in place will also help uh, buffer uh, the, the downside and help drive a, a stronger recovery than might occur otherwise. So I guess I would say I'm cautiously optimistic that we won't see long-lived damage, but we're still at a place where there's uh, a lot of uncertainty surrounding those assessments.
2: Nathan, you mentioned fiscal stimulus. We've gotten a couple of rounds uh, so far. I guess the 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 next one potentially might be something along the lines that the House passed a $3 trillion uh, stimulus bill. How important is another round of fiscal stimulus, particularly one that focuses on states and local municipalities, as uh, many governors have called for? So I,
6: I do expect that we will see uh, another fiscal stimulus bill. Uh, I think that the needs to replenish the uh, PPP program for the small businesses to extend the unemployment benefits. And as you say, to do something for the state and local governments, I think that that is, uh, will be compelling. And Congress will see that as something that is, is unavoidable. Now That said, I don't think uh, we're going to see uh, a $3 a trillion dollar package. My guess is that it would be more in the $1 to one $1.5 trillion dollar range. Uh, and I would expect that Congress would approve that probably late June or into the first half of July.
3: Nathan, 20 seconds. I'm just wondering, right now we're seeing a Fed balance sheet at $7.1 trillion. <laughs> Where do you think it gets by the end of the year?
6: Well, I think it's going to be probably uh, close to $10 trillion, a little bit below that. But, uh, you know, what we're seeing now is market stabilization QE. I think come the middle of the year, we're going to see monetary policy pivot to, uh, with the focus on the dual mandate and the, the Fed is going to be buying. So close to 10 trillion by the end of the year. And, uh, you know, who knows uh, right. in coming years.
2: Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your insights. Nathan Sheets, chief economist and head of macroeconomic research at PGM Fixed Income based in Newark, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
3: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.